Howdy all, welcome back. This is um, now, Mark, if I'm right, and I'm no mathematician, but I think this is our fourth podcast in our series, Seeking God in the Whirlwind, which was a reference to Job when God finally decides to answer Job audibly. He doesn't calm the storm first, he comes right through the storm. And what Mark and I are hoping to do through this little period of time in these podcasts is try to find God. How, how are we to think as Christians as we're navigating this space, um, sort of unique for most of us, not in the world, but at least for a lot of us going through this, this is rather new. And what Mark and I have tried to do in these interviews and, uh, is, is try to talk with someone who's had profound experiences in leadership, um, in ministry, and ask, how do they navigate this? Remember that we are we are citizens of an eternal kingdom that never changes. We're, we're the citizens of a king who will never relinquish his control. And yet he's put us in this time in a world that seems very haphazard and very, um, very unstable. And so somehow we've got to bring this eternal faith and these eternal truths to bear in these moments and be faithful to that while being really quick and responsive to problems in our world. So I really appreciate it to Mark uh, and our conversations. And today we have the privilege of having President Tommy Kiedis with us um, and uh, to be able to talk through his experiences and the work he's done in leadership. Uh, Mark, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say before we jump into our Q&A. No, just I think that's, that's uh, what, again, we're trying to come at this from as many angles as possible uh, to get different perspective and how we can get at this. Uh, we're asking uh, Tommy to talk to us about leadership. Uh, I have enjoyed being uh, working with Tommy because every time throughout this entire situation, I get a nice Winston Churchill quotation in my email <laughs> as a historian that warms my heart. Uh, you know, if Wesley's heart grew strangely warm reading Luther, mine is a Wesley or is a Whitfield or Whitfield is a, a Churchill quote. Let's just say anybody yeah. from more than 50, 40 years ago. That's just yeah. Come on, Mark, yes, yes, true. So I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that Tommy wants to come in here and talk about this stuff with a bunch of historians. Can we, uh, can we jump in on that point then? Because yeah, I mean, if you will, I, I think this is something that, that excites me too, is that you've, you found wisdom in the past. Um, and I think a lot of people are, Mark has said this before, you know, people are too quick to race forward, but Christians are, are very willing and interested in looking past. So you've, you've given us a good diet of Churchill and Edwards from time to time and Luther. How, how valuable is the past to you when you're trying to navigate difficult times like this? I think it's, it's incredibly valuable. It's, and I, I had a Churchill count going for a while, so, it to, so as to slow me down a little bit to say, sorry, folks, this is number six, and back it off. You know, but, um, you know, it, it does. I, I, when I think theologically, theologically, how many times does God use the word remember? I mean, God uses the word remember all the time because there are things buried in the past that shouldn't be buried in the past. They should actually be very, very present in front of us. Mm. And so theologically, I look at that, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, and he said, the things that were written before time, you know, were written for our admonition and learning. So I think there's a strong theological base for looking back, uh, you know, along those lines. Practically speaking, um, for me, his, uh, leaders in history are, I call them dead mentors, um, because mm. they're, great, they're great mentors, but they're dead mentors in that sense. Uh, Winston Churchill, I, and I do enjoy Churchill a lot, and I love reading presidential biography. You guys can walk circles around me when it comes to history, but those two areas are some of my favorites. And when I look at Churchill, um, I just, for instance, uh, I was reading a piece today in the latest biography that's come out on him. And, and you see a guy that's just has unique gifts. It's obvious, unique gifts. And yet he still had to hone those gifts. And there's this sense that innate gifts do not negate hard work. Mm -hmm. And I look at that, and it's a leadership lesson for me. You might have innate gifts, but it still takes hard work. Or I can look at LBJ, who's my favorite president, which we won't go there right now. Um, and I'm writing that down <laughs> <laughs> so we can go back to that. 
<laughs> it's another conversation, Mark, but I just love reading LBJ. Or, or, or looking at Lincoln, you know, and Seward, who was his Secretary of State, was actually his chief rival for the presidencies. And everyone thought he was hands down going to win it. And then he went off to Europe and probably shouldn't have. And Lincoln, lo and behold, wins it, makes him his, his Secretary of State. They form this great friendship. And I learned all kinds of things about what is the first leader, second leader relationship look mm -hmm. like. You know, how does it become strong? So I think theologically and practically, um, and to be theological is to be practical. But if I were to, you know, make that distinction, it's incredibly beneficial to, uh, to look back. There has been a quote that's been attributed to Churchill. Uh, there's, I guess there's a little debate in terms of whether he really said it. I was trying to do some search in some of the uh, biographies. Uh, but the further back you look, the further forward you can see. And there is a strong sense of that. You know, usually people think, well, this is unprecedented. Well, actually not. <laughs> you know, there is nothing new under the sun. Well, I, I, want everyone, I'm, I'm, I want everyone to pay attention to what President Keyes is saying here, right? The, the value of looking back, that's what we as historians, I think that's probably if, if Mark would, uh, would go down a, the long rabbit trail of memory, say that's probably how we both got into this field, was, was tracking through history and realizing how much we can learn from it and how much the past can teach us of the future, which to a lot of people sounds rather impractical. But I think the point you made that God takes these things from the past, teaches us them and then expects us in one sense, right? You said hard work expects us to look back and read and learn and know so that we're prepared for these sorts of things. You're, you're talking about a responsibility in there, not just the offhanded, I, I caught a good bio, but something we need to do. Absolutely. And if I go back to Daniel, I mean, four, three times in Daniel chapter four, I think the, um, Daniel says that, that the Lord, the, the most high rules over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he will. Hmm. So this isn't a haphazard issue that somebody's on the throne. They're on the throne because in the sovereignty of God, God has placed that person there. And if I recognize that God has sovereignly placed people in certain spots, there's probably a reason for me to stop and check out what was happening because it's, it's the nature of the way God works. And so it's, it's, it's always good to go back where God's hand is and God's hands all over the place. So it's another means of learning from him. Yeah. One of the questions I would ask, it was part of something we, we talked about beforehand was, uh, what sort of comfort do you get from reading the past? Um, I, I've, I've gotten this unique new hobby during quarantine, reading books on pandemics, which my wife thinks is morbid. And I said, but you don't understand it. As a historian, it actually gives me some comfort. Uh, so I'm curious, same for you. What, does, it, does it provide a comfort or what sort of comfort it might provide? It, it does. I, I think for me in leadership, one, of the, one thing that's necessary for me in leadership is having led for a long time, and there's, this is the benefit when you have to appreciate someone like Peter Tagg or my predecessor at Spanish River, who had been in the saddle, in the same saddle, in the case of my predecessor at Spanish River for 42 years, mm. or in the case of Dr. Tagg for 21 years. When, you, when you're in the same saddle for a long period of time, you see the ebbs and flows, the highs and lows. Mm. You know, as I think Peter says, the building days, uh, the banner days, and, um, you know, the, the, the other thing, he had a great saying on that, but there needs to be an understanding of that ebb and flow. And so reading history helps us to see the ebb and flow and that it's not always going to be this way. Right. And yes, it's tough, but you know what? There are plenty of times when it's been incredibly tough. We're going to get through it. And we know all the more we're going to get through it because to the point of this podcast, we are living between two worlds and that other world is the world toward which we're mark, you know, that, right. that, that right. marching sense. So I think that, that too gives me a great sense of, of comfort, if you will, but also confidence to say, march on, dude. This is really a neat time. We know where we're going, so let's make the most of this. Right, right. 
one of the other questions that that um, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of both Lincoln and uh, Churchill and realize that both of these men were leading at times of unprecedented situations. Um, and in the case of Lincoln at times where he, he really had to improvise because there wasn't a manual to, you know, what do you do with America that, you know, states want to secede or uh, what does the constitution really mean the presidential's powers are? So how, how, does, how does that help you studying leadership and, and realizing at times I'm going to have to do some improvisation and some experimentation? Hmm. You know, one of the things that I didn't really think about, Mark, until you said it, but when you ask, what does the Constitution say? I think part of what's required when it comes to improvisation is understanding what the basic is. I mean, usually yeah. improv is, is building off of what is a standard. Yep. So I think understanding the standard, and for us, it's understanding the Word of God. Hmm. If it comes to the context in which we're living, and that's historical, or if that's political, and we understand our founding documents, you know, any, improvis in, any improv comes off the standard. So I think part of that is understanding the standard. Yeah, um, yeah, and that's so. And I'm glad you said that because I hadn't really thought about that. I have to write that down myself. Yeah, yeah. Well, and for Lincoln, it was the Declaration of Independence. It was, yeah. it yeah. was, it was that document. And for yeah, but for, yeah, but Mark, that's a good point though. And and Tommy, I think that that's I don't know if that's something you can riff on, but that's a decision that Lincoln had to make. You know, Lincoln had the Constitution in front of him and had to decide. You know, there's been a mistake here. We we've anchored into the wrong document. We got to rethink this and recraft this. Yeah. And so, speak of innovation, and I, I know Tommy, for you, you've got you've got a lot of different things behind you. You're trying to balance and manage those and you have to make decisions about how to, how to do that. But in, and to that point, Dan, I, I look at that and Max Dupree, who for a long time was the, uh, uh, the leader, he's, uh, the CEO of the Herman Miller Corporation, which is a Fortune 500 company, um, solid believer in Jesus and a great um, uh, reflective practitioner when it came to his own leadership. And he said the first, in his book, Leadership is an Art, he said the first job uh, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. Hmm. The last job is to say thank you. And in between, the leader is a servant and a debtor. And, and I think the thing that Lincoln did is Lincoln defined reality. And reality says it's not where it's supposed to be. Hmm. But a leader's job is more than simply define reality. A leader's job is to say, okay, this is where we are. This is the here. Then where is the where, there to which we're going? Where are we taking this country? And to go from here to there, there's a lot of work that has to be done you know, along those lines. Part of that is improv, you know, part of that's innovation. You know, part of that is, um, part of that's listening. I mean, you know, Lincoln had his team of rivals. Um, yeah, yeah. And Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, by the way. Is, <laughs> yes, we are not, yes, that is a phenomenal book. Yes, we're good fans. Yes, Goodwin, we're yeah. fans. Uh, yeah. And, and this, Alan Gilson. Boca is one of her homes, so I've had the opportunity to hear her down in wow. the square. Boca. Is that right? Oh, oh that's yeah. a, yes. And if if you don't have time to read the book, watch the movie Lincoln. That's that's basically gives you a good sense book. of it. Yeah. Gives you a good sense of it. Well, yeah. in light of that, Tommy, that I, you know, one of the one of the things that enamors me about good leaders is the ability to do two things, and that is to be decisive and deliberate. And I think you, you see in history, you 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 like the people that are deliberate, but they don't get anything done. The people who are decisive, but didn't take time to deliberate. You know, armchair quarterbacks, we can all go back and say, hey, you should have taken more time. Hey, you should have moved quickly. But in this case, you don't have the luxury, you know, to look <laughs> back on yourself. You've got to figure it out the most. How, how as a leader do you balance the deliberation and decisiveness so that you're, you're striking the balance well? And I'm, I'm so glad. I mean, and I know it's one of the questions you've had for me, but it's such a great question. And because we, that's the tension that we live in. I, you know, I think back at Harry Truman. I love reading Harry Truman's life as well. And Harry Truman said, you know what? The people put me in this office to make decisions. And I am going to make decisions. You know, he's the guy with the buck stops here sign on his, yeah. on his desk because he understood 
a large part of a large part of leadership is making decisions, oftentimes uncomfortable decisions. So how do we do that mm. in you know in the process? And I, I think part of it stems from what I would call humble boldness and uh, humble humility is like I'm I am a nobody, really in the grand scheme of things I'm a nobody. But the boldness comes from the fact that you know what sovereignly God has placed me here at this point in time, mm. and God has gifted me. And God has given me the responsibility. Therefore, I'm going to operate both humbly because I'm not all that, but with boldness because God's put me here and he's put me here to steward well these days. And if I can live in that tension of humble boldness, I think that helps me to go ahead and humble means listen. Boldness means act. Mm. And, you know, Woodrow Wilson said nothing succeeds in life like boldness. Uh, you know, and there's just that sense that there are times that we have to move forward. And that's a large part of what was going on. So to me, it's humble boldness. It is uh, it's stewardship. Leadership is stewardship. Goes back to the parable. Uh, you know, the talents, one's five, one's three, one's one. What are you doing with the five? Well, part of that involves risk. You know, part of that involves, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try something. It may yeah. not work, Yeah. but it may. And, uh, you know, and, and in my, and you guys jump in whatever you want, but it's really interesting. I've been reflecting on this a little bit. Uh, but in, uh, in my ordination, my PCA ordination, uh, I like that, uh, up right. Oh yeah, that's no, oh yeah. My heart just grew warm again. <laughs> it's just part of the goodness of God that He actually has me here. I so love being at LBC. <laughs> but it's just like God to do what He's doing. But anyway, my my one of the guys that spoke was my predecessor, David Nicholas, and he he looked at me. He's this guy's like six four, five, six, seven hands that could palm a baby. You know, I mean, he's just a big guy. And he said, I want, he said, Tommy, remember, he, and on a few things. One is the, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. He said, the power is not in you. The power is not in me. The power is in the gospel of Jesus, dude. It is, you know, it's not you. And he took me back to John 15, 5, where Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Yeah. Remember, nothing. But then, then he said, but let's go over to Philippians 4, 13. With Christ, you can do everything. And you've got to live in the land of apart from Christ, you can't do anything with him. You can do everything and, you know, live with that sense. So it is the humble boldness. It's stewardship. It's living in that tension. And part of it's the way I think God's wired you. And it's, it's interesting looking back on my life. And I've been kind of going to bed at night sometimes just thinking, God, why in the world am I here, you know, at this point in time? And I just trace different things that God's been doing in my life from the time I was a little kid and my dad, who was a politician, was pushing us as kids. And you've got to know that Ketuses have a very um, deep uh, um, loner streak in them. We do solitude and Ketuses get along really, really well. And, <laughs> so, and, and so my dad was a guy that would always push me. And he would be running for city council. So I was the one that had to go and put the door knocker on somebody's door in Palm Beach Gardens. Or, and I hated it but he pushed me. And when I was in ninth grade, I hated standing in front of people and having to give the ninth grade speech. I mean, I dreaded it, just dreaded it. And yet God pushed me through that. And when I was at Spanish River and was stepping into the point leader role, you know, at that point in time, I'd been in Christian ministry for 30 some years, always as a number two guy, mm. never as the point leader. Mm. And, and there was this 10 year period that God was walking me through my own insecurities helping me to remember that my identity is ultimately not a one loss record. It's what Christ has done for me on the cross. It's listen, you can go to bed at night. You may, you know, you may mess up royally, 
But at the end of the day, you're loved deeply. Rest in that. You know, it's what Christ has done for you that actually situates and enables you to go ahead and lead with boldness. Because it's ultimately not about you. It's about him and what you're doing on his behalf. Right. Let me go back. You, you mentioned something, being the number two guy, and you mentioned Truman. I mean, the ultimate number two guy, right? The guy takes, seriously, he, he, he takes office. He, he has no idea about what the war is going on. He knows nothing. Uh, he has no idea that ENIAC's being cooked up or the atomic bomb is being cooked up. And, and, and he, he yeah. arguably. Thank you, thank you FDR. Uh, yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> There's not yes, a lesson yes. to learn there about leadership yeah. or something. No, <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, th- this is, that'll be our other segment, what not to do in leadership. And, <laughs> And, and, and Truman arguably makes one of the most controversial decisions in the history of the world. He drops two atomic bombs. Um, but, and, and, but one of the things in your blog and that you talked okay, about, what's that? And he slept okay at the end of the day. He, he did, he did, he did, he did. And, but one of the, the reason I, I bring that up is because what Truman was dealing with in that role was the fog of war. Um, and you talk about this concept in your blog, the fog of crisis. And I love that because I thought we always talk about the fog of war, right? We always hear about this, but this idea of fog of crisis, I'd love to give you some space to just riff on that a bit. Because one of the things I've really appreciated about this process and in, in your leadership for our, our, our team is you've been, you've been open with us saying this is changing by the day. Uh, this crisis is changing by the day. That's the fog. That's part of the fog we're dealing with. So I'd love to hear you speak a bit about that fog of crisis, because I don't know if we're going to get everyone to read the blog, but we'll try. Appreciate that, Mark. Yeah. Um, I think when it comes to organizationally, it, it, I think organizations function somewhat res- with respect to the way they do when it comes to fog on the highway. And generally speaking, when they're, if you're cruising down the highway and all of a sudden you hit fog, the first tendency is to tap the brakes. And if it gets thick, the brakes go on even harder mm. and everything slows down. And organizationally, organizations work the same way. When there's fog, when we don't know where we're going, the situation is very confusing, things slow down. People start worrying about where they are, who they are. Am I going to have a paycheck? Is everything going to be okay? Do I like this guy? Do I like the direction we're heading? Everything slows down. So the more, I think, the more that we can clarify who we are in the fog, who we're going to be coming out of the fog, the leaders that are responsible to help march us out of the fog, the easier it is for us in the midst of the fog to have both confidence and then the ability to move forward as the fog begins to lift. And there is a lot of up-close work that can be done in the fog. You can't do a lot of fast moving, a lot of you know, cross-country moving, but you mm-hmm. can do some planning in the fog and some hard discussions in the fog so that when the fog lifts, there is as much unanimity as possible to move forward. Uh, in, in where things are, are going ahead. And for, for me, it's uh, here at LBC, that's been a large part of the issue is I think we have, we've lacked leadership in certain places and we need to define that so we can move forward. Uh, we've lacked a sense of direction. Um, what are we gonna look like coming out of this? And that's part of what I'm going to after this is to record that for our, you know, our broader employee base. And, but as we get that, that one, it encourages us. And then we have a little sense of a marker down the road when, we, when the fog begins to lift. And I think we can move much more quickly and actually a lot more enjoyably as well. It's a little bit of a GPS even in that. Hmm. And I, I like that. I like, because I, I think when the fog of war is used, it's used in a negative sense. And I get it mm-hmm. is negative, but, mm-hmm. but the way you're talking about it by a pace changer, you see it as an opportunity as much as it is uh, a difficulty. And I, I think that's helpful, right? Because now we can turn this to an advantage rather than constantly see it as an obstacle to what we're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. I was in a conversation last night with Dr. Tig 
And he said, you know, and I won't tell you everything he said. He's such a, he is such a champion. I love that man. But one of the things he was saying is, is you know, you have a unique opportunity to remake LBC Capital for the days ahead mm. in a way that makes us that much more effective, that much stronger. And, and it's so true. But that work is done in the fog because when the fog lifts and everything starts going, people, unless we're pointed in the right direction when the fog lifts, we will inadvertently or naturally go back to where we were, yeah. which probably is not going to be the place we want to be. That's a great example too, um, Dan, I think of what Lincoln did at the Gettysburg Address. Yeah. He is in the middle of the fog. He redefines the fog um, and he, he sets a trajectory for the country uh, that the country would not have been ready to hear two years earlier. It was yeah. the fog of war that actually prepared people to hear these things. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that, Mark, because if you go back to if you go back to Lincoln, you know how carefully timed his his decision was. Yes, yes. you know to release the challenges that were, and he was very particular in yes. terms of the timing. Yeah. And a lot of that did as well. That was happening in the fog. Yeah, and. You know, so for us, it's the same way. We've got to understand timing and how critical it is that we're ready when, in that sense, he, he was feeling like the fog was lifting. I need to announce now the Emancipation Proclamation. Let him go. And it was, very, it was timing in the fog that enabled them and preparation in the fog that enabled them to move forward as the fog lift. Yeah. Lifted. Now, here, here's another question that, that gets at this. There was another part from your blog that I, I, I read, I really appreciated, was uh, embrace the challenge. Um, but the flip side of it is, though, that oftentimes leaders have the peace Democrats, like Lincoln had, who don't want the challenge. Or now Churchill looks like a genius, but the, there were plenty of people <laughs> saying, just make a deal with Hitler and let's be done with this. Um, well, the same what, side of Lincoln. Yes. And, and so, but what, what do you think, as a leader, how do you help people embrace the change? So Lincoln had a vision, Churchill had a vision, but how do you bring along people with you who they're not ready? They're, 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 they, it took two years of blood, blood uh, shed for them to get ready. How do you bring them along? How do you get them excited about the challenge? You know, I'll, I'll, I'll say that to me, what's the easiest part of that first, and it may not be exactly to, your, to the question you're looking for, but, you know, Churchill did see things far in advance of anyone else. Now, he had messed up royally prior to <laughs> Antwerp, you know, and particularly in the Dardanelles. I mean, there was Gallipoli, there was some, yeah. you know, big, big things that did not go right, got him kicked out of office. Well, ultimately he resigned, but essentially got him kicked out of office. But he had that foresight to see what was coming. But the fact of the matter is it took the crisis for people to be ready to move. So it wasn't so much for him saying, come along with me. It had to come to the place where, where it's like, you know what? But the only guy we can think of is this Churchill guy. He's probably the only guy that's got what we need. Yeah, so in that yeah, sense, it was yeah. the circumstance that, you know, that, that ultimately that God uses to, to cause people to move forward. Um, and, and that too, I think it, to, a, to a certain extent, nowhere near the same way, is a little bit of where we are now in our current situation at LBC Capital, because I think we're more inclined to say, okay, let's move, because the circumstance has gotten so bad, we recognize we have to make some moves, or we're gonna, you know, like, like England would have, you know, they would have been, they would have been the lone person standing there, they would have collapsed. 
Yes, and I, this is maybe slightly connect, Tommy. And I, I know when I've talked with students, and they, you know, after class, some of them will come up and say, "Hey, can I talk about?" You know, I'm 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 young, and I just I want confidence, and I want confidence, and I would often contrast confidence and courage with them, and say, "I know I know confidence is a wonderful thing." But what you see me when I do what I do, that's not a whole lot of confidence. It's just courage to say, this is what God's called me to do and I'm going to do it. And I, I'm, I'm pulling it off well, I suppose. But I mean, can you, can you speak to that? I mean, if we, we need sometimes not confidence to know it's going to work out, but just the courage to stick with it, knowing God has it in his hand. We do. And I'm, I'm looking for a couple of things that I was, um, had jotted down to that one because uh, that uh, where you had made that comment. I was looking to see on that piece. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to hunt oh, this sorry. down a little bit, but uh, yeah, I, courage, I think courage is operating uh, in spite of my fears. Courage is operating in spite of my inadequacies. Confidence is not a bad thing. I, you know, I, I read Romans, when I read Romans chapter 12, Paul's telling me to, um, to take a very close look at yourself in accordance with the measure of faith that God has given you. And I, I when I look at that and do the the exegesis on that, there is an element of co holy confidence, I would say, that God gives me to say, you know what? It's not so much that I'm really good here. It's just that I know God has gifted me here. And so I lean into that. And that, that is a sense of a holy confidence. But the courage is, I think, um, is, willing to, is willing to exercise that holy confidence in the times that are not easy. And stepping into those places where I, I, I think I can do this, but man, is it going to be hard. Mm -hmm. and, and not everyone's going to like it. And I'm going to have to make some decisions that are very unpleasant. And that's part of what today is. I'm going to have to make some decisions. And I'm going to have to, you know, and so I, the courage confidence thing is a very big deal. And, and there is a confidence that's a holy confidence that's born out of my identity in Christ. It's born out of the gifts that he's given me, my understanding, the measure of the faith of that, that to the what degree has God given me that courage is the is the willingness to step into the moment in that dependence on him with the understanding of how he's gifted me, knowing that I may face some serious blowback. And at the end of the day, it's going to be okay. Uh, one, because I ultimately rest in him. But two, we're probably going to get somewhere. <laughs> uh, I may get there with a few bruises, but we're probably going to get somewhere because we've been willing to exercise the courage under fire, so to speak, uh, to move in that direction. You made a point that it was the war that allowed Lincoln to um, move the country where it was. Lincoln had a vision of where things needed to go. Churchill had a vision. If we go back to World War One, I, I think Woodrow Wilson even had a vision of how the West and the world should be different in light of this. As a leader in higher education, what are some things that you think this uh, situation is causing you to think about where education might need to go in light of this? Yeah, it's... I do believe that education, uh, well, I think for one is uh, the financial model for academic education is broken mm. on both internally and externally. And by internally, I mean, academics, I feel has for too long driven the, the academic model has driven the budget. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think for a long time, you've been able to do that, but we're not living in that same day. Externally, with the rising cost of education, I mean, that's anywhere you read yeah, that yeah. it's common problem, people carrying student debt, all that stuff, that that model is broken. So it has to change. So the crisis provides an opportunity to shift that model. Well, what does that look like? Well, in my mind, that's got to be a business model that supports the academic 
vision, doesn't supplant the academic vision, but supports mm -hmm. the academic vision that in turn informs the budget. Mm -hmm. And there's a significant difference there, you know, on that piece. Um, it, it has to be um, nimble. They're just, I can, pick up, I can pick up my phone and essentially connect via the internet or via social or talk with my friend in Brazil in a moment. Mm -hmm. And I've got to understand the times in which we live. So the education mm -hmm. needs to be nimble. That said, um, to, the, to the question we may have a little bit about community. Community is a, is a contact sport. You know, community is a contact sport. Yeah. And, and it, it comes through touch. And it comes through face to face. And it comes through being able to read body language. And it, and it, and it comes through tears and walking through life. And some of that can happen digitally. A lot of it cannot. Mm. So, you know, Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy, Paul and all the brothers, it was a it wasn't a virtual relationship, although it could have been by pen at times. It was more often than not a walking together relationship. And that is not exclusively, but that is a large part of discipleship. So I think there, the, the sense of continuing to maintain the face-to-face -face and having that integral part is so essential. You know, it's so essential. So it's not to say kiss that goodbye, but it's recognizing that I've got to be nimble. Um, it has to be a lot more collaborative. You know, the day of the lone institution and, and in even in our Association of Independent Colleges and Universities, of which there are 92 just in Pennsylvania, 92. Wow. wow. A lot of them in, in biblical higher education, they just can't make it monetarily mm -hmm. given the shift. And, uh, and there are some things that I just have to recognize are the way in which we interact um, in our world has changed. And so I've got to be willing to adjust the model and not say, you guys, you got to adjust to me. No, I've got to be able to adjust to the world. Um, methodology change, mission doesn't change. You know, the, the mission doesn't change, but the methodology has to change and the modalities have to change. Um, yeah. Or at least have, at least have to be broadened. Yeah. And, I, you know that, yeah, and, that, and that's, a, you know, this is, and it's always a challenge, right, Tom? You've, you've made mention of this, I think, uh, in helpful ways. It's just a challenge to accept change. And, and we have to be careful not to let the fear of change stop us from making those kind of things. There's something about education too, that always has CS Lewis says, you know, when you, if you want to train for a job, that's one thing, education requires leisure and it's hard. It's difficult to expand your soul. And the thing about education, it does have these two pieces. It needs to be nimble and quick and meet a market, but then it needs to do something opposite of that and help students slow down and introspect and learn, which is difficult. And, and it takes time. How, how do these in the future, do these two get stuck together still or? It's, and that's, that is such an important point, Dan. You've got to keep making that point to me and making that point to me because that, well, it is, it's true. Because part of the adaptation to a virtual environment, to trying to make education at the speed of life today, mm. is um, there's, there's goods in that and there's severe dangers in that. I mean, you, it's, it's been interesting without sports and without being able to go to the movies and without being able to go to shopping, people are left mm. like, like, what do I do with my time? <laughs> well, how about, how about read a book? Right. Yeah. Yes. How about, how about think, you know, but that, yeah. we, we are such responders and we're consumers, you know, and, and I'm, I don't think there's anything with wrong with responding. There's nothing wrong with consuming, but to your point, having space to think hmm. is vital. And if I can shift a little bit, I think that's, um, you know, it's when you look at the life of Jesus, 
and the disciples, they walked everywhere they went. Mm. Mm. They had downtime. They had time to pause. You know, we don't have, or we have very little of that because we live in the, in the land of 24 yeah. seven. So yeah, I totally agree with you. And it's, and how do we appropriately carve that out? Or I, I guess there's a difference between it is, does go to a certain extent back to, you know, give a person a fish or teach them to fish. Right. So I can give them a fish and give them this environment that makes it possible, but they still may jump into the lake when they're done. And because <laughs> they haven't learned how to do that, they're just going to swim, you know, they're just going to float in the current. So how do we teach people in this day of nonstop, in this day of constant movement, how do we teach people to pause? To slow yeah. down. Yeah, and, and, and skills are crucial, and discipleship is just really, really hard. And I, I think maybe, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking maybe that's one thing our culture has done is try to reduce discipleship to something that's easy and accessible when we know coming through this in our own way. It's just, it's a really hard thing to do, and students young need to look at that and say, I'm going to go through some really hard things to learn to be a disciple of Christ. And that's a hard, that's a hard message. Not that, not that consumption isn't part of that, but it's a hard message in a consumer economy to say those sorts of things. Absolutely. Well, it's, well, and this, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Mark. Wasn't it Peterson and Peterson's what, a long walk in the same direction? Hmm. It's, we, we don't want a long walk. We want a microwave. Yeah. You know, we want, <laughs> we want the bullet train. Um, you know, we want the five easy steps as opposed to the long walk in the same direction. And that's, that's, yeah, that's part of our challenge. Yeah. In your blog, you also talk about a juxtaposition between being deliberate and rushing. And I think this fits in this very easily because we can rush the process. Um, I, I think there will be a lot of people, um, education and others who will rush to make decisions in the post-COVID world. Uh, I'd like to hear more what your idea and, and give you a chance to spill this out for people of that juxtaposition between deliberate and rush, uh, which you unpacked. Well, you know, it, it's interesting that in, uh, in a crisis, everything speeds up. Hmm. So hmm. the decision space in a crisis changes significantly. When I came, to, when I came and jumped on board officially uh, February 1, my intention was to spend about the first three months being a cultural anthropologist. Well, that went out the window about <laughs> February 28th. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like just that's a luxury you don't have. Well, you know, Shannon and I actually were looking forward to taking a little bit of time because we had left Spanish River and really almost the actually literally the next day drove to PA, and then that Saturday, so Sunday finished, Monday drove, Tuesday arrived, Tuesday morning because we drove all night, and then started unpacking Tuesday. Was in the saddle on Saturday, so we were looking forward to spring break as a little bit of time to kind of just. <laughs> We've got a place in Arkansas. We went over our place, but we're like three days or four days into this. Like we got to get back. You know, we can't stay. We got to get back. And then that, so that decision space just gets compressed. So there is that sense where I don't get the luxury of being able to process as much as I, as I want. I'm a processor. And the longer I've been in leadership, the more I realize I don't get the luxury of processing. I have to process in real time and I have to, I have to be, up earlier or stay up later to do the thinking that I want to do. But also the listening is very important because it's the listening that enables us to really expand the decision space because we're getting many good inputs that enables, but then we just have to process them, you know, very, very quickly. Um, but at the point in time, when it comes to crisis, we have to decide, you know, Patton said a good plan violently executed today is better than a great plan or a perfect plan executed in a week. 
because it, it, you have to. And we are in the spot where it is, as you said, Mark or, or Dan, it's changing every day. Yeah. And so part of that is, okay, we've got to move. And it we is, need, so I'm saying again. We need, again, we need Patton, not McClellan. Yeah, McClellan, yeah, McClellan will kill us. <laughs> yeah, McClellan will kill us in this, yes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think I, we're going to have to provide a reading list for this, this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Glad, I am so glad you brought up McClellan because McClellan <laughs> would have, I mean, yeah, this, McClellan was, he had all the looks, but man, he was, and people loved him. People, but he was death to the cause. Yes, he had a great nickname, the Young Napoleon. I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? If I if I can jump to with a couple couple minutes we've got left uh, one of the things and I'm gonna I'm gonna quote a a, a blog also Mark's taking all the oxygen there I also uh, <laughs> I don't you know but you you had made this interesting statement sort of jumped off the page at me when you talked about as you're going through all these points of how to deal with crisis humor you talked about humor and that yeah. jumped off the page because um, I think that's one of the things we can easily forget at a time like this we become very sour and dour and forget that this is an important part what what role does humor play for you in as a leader. Humor plays a huge role. Uh, it, you know, it really does. Um, and again, I'll go back to Jesus and his disciples. So this is not a direct to humor, but I think it's a direction to space to live life. So Jesus and his disciples everywhere walked. And I can guarantee you they did not walk like automatons. You know, <laughs> we are going to Jerusalem. You know, there, there's some life going on there. They're fishing, they're talking, they're, you know, they're shooting the breeze. There was space. And I think what humor does is humor provides emotional space. Mm. It provides an opportunity to pause. Lincoln went to the theater more than any president in history. And he said, if I, he said, I've got to go there. You know, the pressure was so great. He had to have some space to have an emotional sense of relief from the cares and the worries of it all. Woodrow Wilson played more golf than anyone. He painted his golf balls red so he could play in wintertime. <laughs> but, but he also had severe, you know, he had severe physical ailments and he knew it. So he had to have some things to bring the pressure down. Uh, it's interesting. So Churchill, you know, Churchill effectively, differing opinions on this, but we'll say he blows it, you know, in Gallipoli and the Dar Dardanelles. So he comes in and comes out of that spot and he's out. And at 40, 1915, at 40, about where he is, it looks like he is done for. And he's got the black dog. He's got the black cloud hanging over him. His sister-in-law comes along. She's painting. He says, let me give this a try. And an entire new world opens yeah. up for this guy. Yeah. And so everywhere you tr see Churchill go, when yeah. he's going to the front lines, and he didn't do it a lot, he's painting. If he goes to vacation in France, he's painting. If he's at Chartwell, he's painting you know, wherever he is. And he was a painter. I mean, he had some 500 paintings and it was, yeah. I actually, that was another thing in Palm Beach. So I got to go to his gallery. It was beautiful, but um, hmm. uh, really cool. They brought in a selection of his painting, but the That's whole point awesome. is it was what put, you know, emotional fuel back in his tank. For me, I'm a car guy. And so I know I've got to have that time and it's good for my soul. And I unapologetically do it. And laughter provides some of that. So Churchill said, laugh and teach your men to laugh. And, you know, if you can't laugh, you know, grin. And if you can't grin, get out of the way until you can, because there's got to be some sense of releasing of this pressure for what goes on. And so in my, one of my first notes to the staff, um, I, you know, shared a couple of the funny things and people like, well, you know, so, I, mean, I didn't get any pushback on it, but how can you say that in this time? Well, 
we still have to live, mm. you know, we still have to live. And, and that's part of what God has given, I think, to provide a little bit of an emotional pause that helps us to come back in the very serious and intense time and dive in with a little bit of rest in our soul and in our heart. And I would have loved to have gone to dinner. I would pay anyone's bill to go to dinner with Lincoln and Churchill. That would be oh, absolutely entertaining. <laughs> absolutely. Because what do you have, Mark? You've got Lincoln stories. Yes. You know, you've got Lincoln stories, and they were yes. often humorous. Yes. And he knew how to laugh. Yeah. And, yeah. And, yeah. you know, you're, you're dealing with, you know, hundreds and thousands of people dying every day. Yeah. And it's essentially on you. And yet he knew I've got to get to the theater. I've got to laugh. So he was, he was having that. And it's the same thing, you know, well, Churchill's just thinking, I mean, it just, he's a one of a kind. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's to John Piper, John Piper. I think it was John Piper said mountains are not meant to envy. And so when you look at mountains of people like that, you say, thank you, God, for giving us people like that. You know, I could never mm. be that in a hundred lifetimes. I'm okay with that, but it sure is fun to watch, you know? Well, that's great. Um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to close on, Tommy. We, we, we promised you we'd, we'd give you time. We know you've got to move on to something else. Is there anything that you can uh, tell your community here just as a, as a closing remark, closing comment? Yeah, I, I guess um, one, two, maybe three. I've been wrestling with writing a piece on this, but, um, but I've got another piece in the queue that I'm trying to finish up now for my leadership blog, which is what car guys teach me about leadership. It's pretty cool. But um, but this I, I look at is some of the temptations of a leader. And, and I think one of the temptations of a leader is to think I'm the savior. Mm. And, you know, and I'm not. There's one savior. His name is Jesus. Amen. He's the one that's got it all together. You know, it's, it's to the Luther thing. There are two days on my calendar, this day and that day. And that day is coming. He's bringing it. He's the one riding the white horse. I'm nobody's savior. I am a servant placed to lead in this mm -hmm. particular situation in time. So to me is remember, I'm no one's savior. And that can creep in real easily. And I am not. Mm. And, and at the same time, I can't be a lone ranger. You know, people talk about leadership being lonely. Yeah, maybe at times. But you can't be a lone ranger. You know, because getting through is it comes by leaning on people who are better than you. It's why I love having the folks in our, in our cabinet. They're just better than me. And that makes life a blast because you've got the best opinions coming at. And then you broaden that to include other folks and not play the lone ranger. Think I've got all the answers and you get a better answer. So to me, those are, you know, those are a couple of big pieces in the midst of that. Um, and then I may have one more. Um, I don't know. I think that's, that's a, those are a couple of big ones. Um, and it's in leadership is stewardship. You know, at the end of the day, leadership is stewardship. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have? What do you have, Tommy, that you have not been given? Oh, the answer to that is I don't have anything that I've not been given. Therefore, you know, Paul says, count us as stewards. And so if I can live in that light, everything I've been given is a gift. I've got to steward it well. Okay, I'm going to steward it well. And I'm here for that time. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to have a blast then. I'm, you know, in this spot. And I am, I'm having a blast. I'm, the hurt of the, for the people that go through the hurt, that's not a blast. But the other part is an absolute joy and delight, you know, that God's placed us here at this point in time to make decisions that are going to have ramifications, you know, Lord willing for, for a long, long time. Well, leadership is a mantle, and, and we're praying for you, Tommy. I, I came under Tag's leadership and, and watched him lead and, and enjoyed that in a lot of ways and then can't imagine what it's like to have to shift the entire burden to someone who's just coming on and having to manage all of this while holding in trust something's that, that old but yet this much change. It's a, it's a very difficult task, and I, I know that there's a lot of people praying over and around you in, in this period, and, and we'll, 
be doing that also. And I appreciate Dan. And that's one of those things. There are times in life I've told others, there are times in life when you can tell that people are praying for you. Mm. And this is one of those times I can, I, I don't say it flippantly. I don't say it lightly. This is one of those times in my life. I can tell mm. that people are praying both in um, ability to make decisions in real time, you know, to see mm. some things and see them pretty quickly. Um, maybe to know when to shut up and listen to somebody <laughs> else uh, to, for strength and energy to keep pressing on and finding joy in every day. Peter told me, he said, Tommy, I loved every day of my presidency. And I told him last night, because we were talking last night, I said, Peter, I am loving every day of this. You know, it's just, um, and a large part of that is because, and the same thing, you've got people that are praying for you. And mm -hmm. that is, you say, thank you, Jesus, that I've got that, because it makes all the difference in the world. Well, thank you, Tommy. I, I can't thank you enough for spending time. I know you're a very busy yeah. man, but um, I think it means a lot to us in the community to have a chance just to, just to wrap with you a little bit. Well, yeah. my delight, guys, my delight. I, I'd love to hang in, but I'm going to have to jump in and do that recording that's going that's out okay. there. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. This has been so helpful, I think, to the community. And in some cases, it's uh, Dan and I, we felt like we've been processing this together. Uh, with the community and it's a great way for the whole community to process together. So thank you so much again for giving Thanks, us some time. Uh, yeah. Thanks Mark. I look forward to talking Lincoln and, <laughs> and LBJ and who knows. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, we'll do that. A bunch of other people you guys know about that I'm clueless. So. <laughs> See you guys. Thank you. Thanks Mark. Thank okay. You. Thanks Tommy. You got to stop recording there, Mark. <laughs>